This program is part of Full Service Radio, an internet radio station and podcast network with over 32 weekly shows broadcasting from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. All of our hosts are Washington, D.C. locals, covering stuff like music, arts, culture, identity, politics, and so much more. Visit fullserviceradio.org for all of our programming and enjoy the show. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to create and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you. You're listening to District Durkas. A Durka from Yemen, that's me, Sama, and a Durka from Algeria, that's Lilia. Aloha. We're living in the District of Columbia, and we're recording this show live from the Line Hotel for full-service radio every day at 2 p.m. We get together, and we decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the United States. Topics include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc., and all the prisms and schisms in between. Thank you guys for tuning in today. We have a long show for you. There's going to be a lot for you to listen to, and we're going to try to do this as best as we can. This, this week, we've split off tasks. Lilia went off to the streets of D.C. to ask some questions, and I actually got to talk to an architect who is an online satirist who makes fun of a lot of things. He, he's a, a blogger, and he is an Iraqi-Lebanese architect living in London. I think I said architect twice. Talking about architecture, the climate architecture was kind of brutal, but I still braved the cyclobomb to go and interrogate some people about what they thought, what associations came to their minds when I said the word word Middle East. So we can go right into the first uh, response. What comes to mind when you hear the word Middle East? Dubai. Anything else? Uh, a lot of money. <laughs> All right. So, that Dubai, was lots of money. Quite a typical answer. So, um, everybody was cold, and they were just giving you their most honest, quickest answers. Which, where is the hot place to be right now in the Middle East? It's going to be where you find malls and Aladdin-shaped, New York-shaped buildings. Just yeah, the right I mean, combination of comfort i think also the area is known for just like financially attracting a lot of people you have another clip for us right yes let's cut right into it to mind when i say the middle east offhand any association right now yeah um aladdin 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 after that food and never two without three war thank you thank you (laughs) i i love that this guy was so honest for us. You know, Aladdin, and we've got the, the whole... And then you have food, which I love. And then you have war, which is a fact of our area. Yeah, we got the storytelling about the Middle East, the narrative, the, the imaginary you know, Middle East, Aladdin. And then the real Middle East war. And then <laughs> the food, the, the most common denominator, and war. So, yeah, good job, uh, person on the street in this cold, giving us a very terse analysis of, like, the, the biggest facets of the Middle East. Thank you. I feel enlightened. 
Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, we've been reduced to that. But because of that, it actually ties very beautifully to our next segment. This week, we did want to talk about Trump as an inspire, like he is inspiring to be an Arab dictator president. At least that's something that we've talked about before. I feel that Trump is a phenomena for America. And we have our whole show set up to discuss this further. And so while I was talking to you about this, I was kind of thinking, you know, what what makes Trump a Durka? And I think many things make him a, like a Durka. One, he aspires for a very lavish kind of lifestyle. You know, you have the money uh, aspect that we heard the people on the street stereotype with people from the Middle East. So, you know, he he I don't know if he's actually rich or not, but he tries to give the impression that he is. And he, you know, has those apartments covered in all these expensive pieces and everything is colored in gold. And his wife is this like young, you know, beautiful woman that had worked on. And then he has jumped around from one, one woman to the other. He doesn't see them as equal partners, but as something or an extension or a trophy of what he represents. And then I think a lot of things about Trump to me, a loot of a Durka president because he can't accept criticism and his ego is so huge. And a lot of the dictators in the Middle East, you can't really critique them or go against them. And so Trump falls in line with a lot of that. You you had different opinions. Yeah, to me, Trump is symptomatic of a bigger situation. So as much as I like to draw parallels between like a Durka president and Trump, I think what's interesting is understanding what leads to Trump. What are the conditions in a country such as the United States, a very elaborate uh, liberal democracy, what does it take? What does it take to elect a Trump? What are the Durka conditions that you know, one must experience? So I was more looking at um, the disparity, the, the disillusionment, all these, um, all these symptoms that are traditionally correlated to the Middle East. So to of- you, the Durkas are... The Americans, not yes. the president. Yes. Under certain duress, this is you, you find like similar behaviors. Under but, certain You know, like I can see that. I can see that the people elected a Durka president because they have been living a Durka circumstance. But at the same time, doesn't it take having a Durka president to kind of exhibit all of these? They could have elected someone else and it would have but turned they absolutely different. Because they showed symptoms of Durka countries. Yeah, because the president is Durka too. But they elected the Durka, that's like kind of egg and chicken. But what I mean is usually Middle Eastern countries are blamed for their disparity between like their centers and the rest, their corruption. And so these are all feelings that Americans were feeling. They were under similar yeah, conditions right as, as Middle Easterns. And you would hope that a country so mature, um, faced with similar conditions as Middle Eastern, would make a better choice than Trump. And what it's exemplifying to me is that under same circumstances, you get on. similar results. You get something... Okay, hold on, hold on, though. Like, let's look at who is working with Trump. Like, I think his daughter is working in the White House. His daughter's husband is working in the White House. His son is tweeting official stuff and is somehow involved in his campaign as well. And his other son. So it's like a family affair. You know, he's exhibiting cronyism, nepotism, and he's exhibiting... And how does a democracy, like, get to that point? 
How does like the longest democratic tradition elect Trump? But here's the thing. If they elect someone else, it could immediately revert back because they have a mechanism that's like anti-Durka, right? Like they, can, they, have a, they have a system in place that can block all of these things from happening, right? So for me, something that makes Trump non-Durka is, or Durka and non-Durka at the same time, is that he's preparing and grooming his daughter to kind of prepare and run for president. And that's such Durka behavior. Correct. Like you want to pass the power to your son, to your family. You don't want to get it. You know, you want to keep the wealth in. That we've seen with the Bush family. But the non, not- yeah, but the non-Trump, like the non-Durka thing is choosing a female instead of his, like he's got sons, but he's still choosing like, he's like, all right, you guys are kind of useless. I'm going to choose Ivanka because she makes more sense to me. Right. Like, so in that sense, he's doing something that's a little different. Yes. To me, I'd still see that uh, as a detail i really i'm more interested in in how you get there than i understand i understand trump because he like you said is similar to the leadership we've seen in the past like 50 years in the arab world but, i understand him too but i, I understand like him, work with him but i understand him i understand them these leaders because the situation in these countries is so dire and you have a country that is not in a dire condition you have four years and then you can elect somebody else and you have like strong institution but then faced with little struggles suddenly you revert back to a guy like trump you're supposed to be doing better especially when you exert so much force preaching better to like you know exhorting people to do better when they are when their situation when they don't even have institution when they're very inchoate in their political development compared to the United States. So I think it's funny that everybody behaves the same under certain circumstances. So there's nothing essential to being a Durka. It's really the socio Human nature. It's really right. socioeconomics. Like under certain socioeconomics, you kind of see the same, uh, yeah, the same behaviors. Well, America tries to at least appear to the world that it doesn't have the same socioeconomic issues as like the rest of us. And our guest that's going to speak in the next segment actually says in a tweet on October 17th, 2017, the U.S. exported so much democracy to the Middle East, it ran out of it. I mean, I think that's so great. Our, our guest for the next segment is going to be Carl Scharo. He's going to talk about these things. But I just want to say quickly that I understand Trump. I feel like he's someone you can work with, not because he's great, but because we have seen that form of leadership before. But I think it's a very healthy symptom for America. I think this is an opportunity the fact that he is president, but only for four years, he could be for he could be here for eight years. I mean, now it's seven years. But the idea is they have a chance to take him out of office and they can be like, this is not what we want. There's a mechanism in place to say no. And I think he's a healthy symptom in that. Correct. He puts everything on the table, like everything is on the table. And now people can can see what's wrong with the system. And it will make everything stronger. It's just a test. It's a growing pain. All right, so more on Trump and more on our guest right after this break.
Hi, everybody. Welcome back to District Durkas. We are recording live from the Line Hotel. This is full service radio. A Durka from Yemen, that's me, Sama. And a Durka from Algeria, Lilia. Hello. We're living here in the District of Columbia. We get together every week to decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the capital of the United States. Topics include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc. And all the prisms and schisms in between. So right before the Yad, we were just talking, you know, we did a little survey on the street and we asked people what they think of when they think of people from the Middle East or Durkas like us. What do you, you know, what do you think of? And then we made a brief introduction to our guest. But before we jump into that, this is actually going to be part of a, a two part interview that we did with Carl Sharo. The first one is just very light, touching on what's going on in the United States. Um, and the subject is broadly how Trump or the president of America is aspiring to be an Arab dictator. So the thing is, I feel, and I feel like everybody who's from the Middle East or is from a part of the world where they have a regime that's a little bit authoritative, whether it's a dictatorship or a military um, regime or even a monarchy, they can kind of relate to what Trump is doing. And every time I've talked to someone from the Middle East, they go like, um, duh, yeah, Trump is, yes, like this is so what we're used to. And then they, they have this weird silence and then they go like, but we're smarter. We're definitely <laughs> smarter. And so I don't know. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like you have a similar experience with that? I can see the parallel between Trump and having some uh, dictatorial tendencies or resembling, you know, the big man, you know, trust in this patriarchal figure who allows himself to say whatever comes and that's honesty and you know, it's translated in a positive way because he's the strong man. At the same time, I'm more interested in the conditions that led to Trump, which I think are the root of the parallel between a Durka country, like a Middle Eastern country, and the United States. Like, what are the conditions that are similar that can bring about a figure like Trump? So what are these conditions that you're looking at? Well, for instance, I'm going to take uh, the example of Algeria. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to take the our first democratic election that happened in the early 90s after our first, after our Arab Spring, which happened 20 years before all Arab Springs. So we get riots, and in 91, we just jump straight into a democracy. Um, the election is open to m a multiplicity of parties, and uh, including the Islamic Front. Okay. So the Islamic Front, to me, is you can compare that to European fascism or, you know, xenophobia, you know, in the United States or the Trumpism. Yeah, the right. Yes. What happened is you have a people who just is done riding and is disillusioned with power. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't care anymore about whether you're from left or right. They want to choose the outsider. Yeah. And this is a nascent country. At this point, Algeria is 30 years old. Mm -hmm. So you get this concern for corruption. So you elect the outsider. And there's also this notion that I think was similar in the United States where they kept trying to explain the phenomenon by saying you have progressive bubbles as opposed to like the rural sections in between and there's disparity in that. Same thing in Algeria. I remember my parents telling me, well, Algiers does not represent the entire country. So that disparity. Mm -hmm. So then you get the Islamic Front, right? And so that's who won, right? That's who won. But the elections were canceled by what I'm just going to call deep state. Sure, to deep state. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, but at the time, you're 30 years old. 
as a nation, and the deep state comes to the rescue of the republic. And now you have a country in 2018 that has fully embraced you know, democratic ideals, that is a well-oiled machine, mm -hmm. um, and it's you know, institutionally. And then you have like, the same symptoms, like, oh, a little disparity between like, rural areas and the cities. You have a little like, um, resentment towards corruption and power. But and you, you behave similarly to a new country. So in a sense, yes, they're choosing someone from the outside, but can't we make the same argument to why Obama became president? No. Like, he kind of looked a little bit like an outsider. He's not the typical white um, male, although you might, you know, argue that he had the same experience as a, the, every president before him. You know, he went to good schools. He was well-educated. Um, but at the same time, couldn't we have seen Trump come in? But that would be, Obama would be in the name of progress. That would be taking a chance on progress. What I'm seeing here is how um, taking, going, going backwards, like what happens? What are the conditions? Like yeah. this is a country that condemns such behaviors. I mean, he's talking about bringing back coal mining so to, factories. Yes. So the point I'm trying to make is that maybe democracy and universal values are not inherent to one culture. You get some frustrations and then these frustrations lead to similar leadership like Trump. Like in Europe, you have a, they swing towards fascism whenever they have an economic crisis, they resort to xenophobia. So maybe it's not so much the Durka, but it's more the conditions. So let's, let's see what Carl said about this. He wrote an article about a year ago, right when Trump was inaugurated, right after the, the protests happened in Washington, D.C. against him. And the article for Politico, you know, he was just saying, like, America, you're an Arab country now. Welcome to the club, right? And so he said... It's hard not to notice the many similarities between our countries and yours. From fiery inauguration protests and bitter disputes about crowd size to the intelligence services forays into politics and the rise of right-wing extremists. It appears that you are traveling very much in our direction and at the same time, like us, becoming a curiosity for foreign correspondents trying to explain what's happening in your region to the world. You might be distraught about where you are headed, but we aren't. Perhaps this will be an opportunity to put our differences aside and recognize how similar we are. And so I think now we're very much alike. He, he is touching on something great here. So he, we have a few clips that are prepared for our audiences to hear. Let's listen to what he says about Trump and the Middle East. Well, it's funny you should say that because like about a year ago, I wrote um, um, this, this, this uh, article that said, uh, America, you're an Arab country now. And uh, it was just basically uh, looking at how Trump, you know, just kind of resembles uh, uh, some Arab rulers. And uh, but more than that, it was kind of more, more, more than that, because it was kind of quite interesting after Trump got elected that a lot of people, uh, you know, all of a sudden for many liberals, the CIA became their heroes and they were going to stand up to Trump. And I was like, you know, that's really an Arab thing. We love our Mukhabarat. Yeah. And I was kind of drawing out on all these. Um, I mean, some people missed the point of that, but but it was really like saying to an American audience, you've always made fun of us. But now, you know, you have a ruler uh, just like ours. So hope you enjoy it. It was kind of a moment of schadenfreude of mocking the Americans for what's happened to them. And uh, but 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 on a serious note, you know, some Arabs were actually quite excited about Trump in the beginning. It kind of leads up to your your connection because, yeah. you know, there's always that section of Arabs who thinks like uh, 
strong men are good and uh, uh, we, we, we need kind of dictators to keep us uh, in shape. And, and I think now they're realizing after the travel ban and all of that, this is actually very bad news for, for Arabs in general and for many people in general. But I think there are superficial uh, uh, kind of similarities. And um, I, I have some aunts who have furniture that's not different from his. Yeah, just a very lavish, very cool. So I love that part about his aunt's furniture because of like Trump's style and attempts to always go big and just go big or go home kind of thing and his really old furniture. So actually, Carl, right before we spoke on the phone, he was in an online competition with Trump about who has a bigger red button to press on. Um, he just wasn't happy that North Korea and Trump were talking about their big red buttons. And he was just like, you know what, we, we Arabs, we've got big buttons too. And so he hilariously started a big red button Twitter competition online. Um, so he heard his insight on that. And then he kind of just goes and, and, you know, we discuss what's going on more and we delve into the subject of, of him meeting with King Salman and President Sisi of Egypt in Saudi Arabia. Um, do you remember when they met together? When they were around the orb? Exactly. So I kind of asked him about the orb. So that, that meeting was, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it. It was kind of just straight out of like, a science fiction movie where like the Lord of the Rings is about to appear or something. I don't know. It was just the villains. Well, there was are, an, the, the orb of light. The orb was glowing, it right? It was glow. It was just surreal. And they're all touching it and kind of smiling. One of them looking, you know, happy that he just got rich and the other looking lost. And one was just like, Oh my God, I'm so happy. I'm part of this too. And so I'm not going to say who's who, but if you follow, you kind of just know who it is. Um, and so Carl just very briefly touched on that subject. Yeah, I mean, how can anyone interpret that? <laughs> I think it was like, if, if you wanted to kind of like um, show the three of them in a James Bond villain situation, you, you couldn't have done it any any better than that. It was literally as if you're, you know, like they're they're carving the the earth into spears of influence. But unfortunately for Sisi, he, he only had his hands on the ocean. He didn't have any territory, yeah. but it's kind of like a symptom of this absurd moment um, where I think there's a serious aspect to it in that um, we've been seeing like in the past few years, the collapse of kind of the broader international order, as well as the order that governed the Middle East for 20, 30 years. Uh, and I think there's all sorts of kind of uh, absurd manifestations of this quite erratic moment, an unpredictable moment that, you know, things like the old photo become manifestations of. And at one level, it feels uh, quite scary. But on the other hand, it's almost like there's a sense of opportunity that things are starting to move. Okay, they're not moving necessarily in the right direction. Yeah. But maybe there's a there's an opportunity there. So, you know, in a sense, the Middle East and America are closer than ever and also further than ever. A lot of times when I meet Americans, I want to explain that, you know, sometimes when they're so upset about Trump, I'm just like, this is how we felt. And also, so you only have four years to go. This was kind of fair and square. You're invoking the deep state, which to me is what resonates the most, is the, the implication, like trying to get the CIA and the FBI involved in swaying the political apparatus one way or another. In a liberal democracy, you'd hope that the role of these agencies would be curtailed 
as much as possible and you want to get away from the realm of these agencies. So to invoke them to deal with really what citizens should be dealing with through institution. And I'm seeing my liberal friends uh, justifying an impeachment via CIA. And maybe six months ago, they would blame the CIA for, you know, intrusion of their cell phones. Yeah, that's... So, so this is funny, because this actually goes right into what he's going to say next. He, he kind of gives advice to America. I'm sorry, he, he just goes right in, and it plays into this. If the analogy is correct, there's no way to get rid of Trump without some sort of external intervention. So I think what they should anticipate and work for is to convince like countries like uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and India and Pakistan to interfere uh, on their side in America and remove uh, the regime of Donald Trump because they always keep saying that's the only way to bring about change in the Middle East, you know, and, or, or uh, the global South in general. Uh, so I think Americans should start working very hard, lobbying, you know, India, Pakistan, China, and getting them to interfere on, on, on their behalf. So an intervent- interventionist approach that the Americans are so very used yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, all the way. They've, they've, they've always said intervention is the right way, and I believe, you know, intervention is the right thing for America now to get rid of this regime. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if some liberals feel that it might be necessary. <laughs> well, I was thinking, I, I saw something earlier today where um, it wasn't American. It was like a, a British neocon who, who was like fantasizing about um, military uh, officers getting rid of Trump. And I was like, uh, this guy wanted to... Um, uh, he, he believed we should introduce democracy uh, to the Middle East by force. And then uh, the first election that doesn't go their way, they're fantasizing about a military coup. So <laughs> I think it says a lot. I mean, this is kind of conversations I had with my friends. When, when everything was happening, I was like, okay, it's bad, but it's not the end of the world yet. But you also kind of look like you have all the ingredients for an Arab Spring. You're rioting. You yes. want him out. There's, you know, repression of these rioting. You have, like, the, the most tremendous march, historic march. You have so much yeah, but, opposition you know, being expressed in ways that we haven't seen in a while. Yes, we haven't seen it in a while. But in a sense, I feel that Americans romanticize activism. They don't realize the extent or, that, or the sacrifices that you have to make to, to be an activist. Correct. But I'm just pulling the, the irony of if we were to look at it the way they would look at it then that would be cause for intervention. So I'm going like to... Maybe we need to help our brothers and sisters in America get rid of Trump. And I think and that's, that's totally what, what he's saying. That's what he's trying to say, I think. But, you know, who do you reach out to now? All the countries Canada, that... of course. Mexico? And Mexico. But Canada doesn't you really... intervene. We need a country that is more willing to intervene. I think you have to go with borders. And then maybe you can have a center of operation on the other side of the Atlantic. Oh, I see. Thicken the plot. <laughs> So finally, I'm going to just take another quote that's from his same political article. And he goes, a word of warning, though, before embarking on this path, we've tried the revolution thing ourselves and it didn't work out so well. Maybe you should just adopt to th- adapt to things in the new regime. We were always told that having a strong man in charge is the best solution for Arab countries. Otherwise, there would be chaos. And this is actually what Americans would say to the Middle Easterners. And then he goes... Perhaps the American people are not ready for democracy after all. 
let's face it, America, you look like an Arab country now. So just to let our audience know, this is our first part of an interview with Carl Scharrer, who's an architect in London. And he is a kind of, in a sense, a, an online comedian. He laughs about how his, his uh, business card should read clown and Arabist from now on. And we are going to talk about something that he coined that's called Occidentalism. And we have a little clip of that where he explains what we're going to talk about in a future episode. Yeah, so it's basically, you know, it's basically the reverse of Orientalism. It's basically when, uh, um, for example, uh, you get these, a lot of these photo essays now, mm -hmm. like let's say a country like Iran. So you get a photographer who goes in there and says, this is going to show you what everyday life in Iran is okay. like. And it would be pictures like of Iranian woman at a cafe or an Iranian man and woman in a supermarket and it's like very everyday banal things. And it's almost as if saying, oh, look, they're just like us. And it's well-intentioned, but it ends up being like completely absurd because why would you suppose that anyone is not going to be like you? Why would you suppose that people wouldn't shop in supermarkets or go to cafes or whatever they want to do? I kind of feel the same way when people go to a foreign country and they take pictures with kids. Yeah. Because the kids how look different. Would, how weird would it be if I just came here to a kindergarten and posed with kids? That would be suspicious. Yeah, I mean, it's to also look like you're somewhere different. You're, you're interesting. So. so actually, in our next episode, we're going to talk about Occidentalism and about a, a, a person, a heroic figure that he put together called White Man. And we get to talk more about those personalities that travel abroad. But right now, guess what time it is? Orientalism Express. Yeah, so if Occidentalism is the opposite of Orientalism, Carl Sharo, I hope you're listening. This is our Orientalism Express section. We have selected a video this, this week from Shameless, which a lot of people may not see, but the people who see it do love it. Um, so I, I, Lilia doesn't watch the show. I watched the show, and I explained it to her. And now, as a person who doesn't want the show, I'd like her to explain it to other people who don't watch the show. <laughs> Uh, I don't have context for the show, but you mean the scene itself? Yeah, the scene that we're playing. Um, what, what is she trying to buy? That You so need that detail. Yeah, so there's a little girl who already had a baby. She's 16, and she has a child, and she has a sexual relationship with a guy. She goes on a binge on drugs, and then she needs to get the Plan B pill, which is what you take as a form of contraception after the fact. And so she goes to the pharmacy, tries to get it, doesn't succeed, Right. She doesn't succeed because in the state that she lives in, she has to be 17 years old. And again, another parallel with the Durka. Yeah. So then after that, what's funny is that she pays someone off to buy her the pill. And then that person just ends up ripping her off because they don't believe in contraception. They take the money them, to themselves. So she then fights with her. They both end up in jail. And she then calls her friends to help her out. And her friends are one black guy and one brown guy who drives, by the way, he was a taxi driver who lost his job to Uber people, which is classic again. But let's listen to the scene and then talk about it more. Dang it, oh, we're running out of time. I got this. I'll get the pill. Can I have the morning after pill, please? I love that segment. 
yeah, if you need that last turkey in the supermarket. I, it was just so great. Allah I mean, the girl, she's running out of time. She needs the pill. And so you hear the clock ticking and the sound and that in the in the music in the music video in the video. Right. So you're watching the episode and you hear the clock ticking just like tick, 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 tick. And then her friends are trying to help her not get pregnant again because she already had a baby and she wants to make a choice for herself. And that is I don't want to have another baby, but nobody's willing to help her. Those two guys who are minorities are trying to help her. You know, the black guy has an ID and he's like, all right, I'm going to just go and get the pill. But there's a huge line in the pharmacy and they have to cut through it. And there the brown guy has a genius moment, an aha moment where he jumps on a chair and he just screams, Allahu Akbar. And people just set off in panic and they just run out everywhere. And I think it's hilarious because I think Americans in general don't know what Allahu Akbar is genuinely used for. It's used to like evacuate a place as fast as possible. Well, nowadays, yes. But so. prior to that, my friends actually visited some of my friends here in America and, and my friend said something and they're like, oh, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And my friend just kind of stared at them like, what? And so Allahu Akbar is takbir and it's used to celebrate things or to be like, oh, bravo, great. Allah, Allah, this is so good. You know, like it's a positive thing, but it's been taken out of context, not because of the West, but because of how it was portrayed in the media because of a terrorist group. So because of Al-Qaeda or ISIS or like some beheadings. It's a Allah. war cry. Well, I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous. You know, now you say Allahu Akbar and everybody's just like, oh, my God, it's Including scary. Including me, to be perfectly well, honest. In this context, yeah, in America, it'd be kind of scared for someone to just walk around and be Allahu Akbar because of how it's been taken out of context. But, you know, we actually are going to do something here for our audiences. We're going to check in with local police and ask whether it's legal or illegal to scream Allahu Akbar in public places. Actually, I have asked a cop. But before that, yeah, I'd like to share a story. Like, my parents were in Paris for, they were coming back Christmas holidays. And they were in the, um, they were in the airport at customs. And then suddenly somebody's phone goes off and it, it screams Allahu Akbar because it's a call to prayer. Yeah. And everybody just freezes and like gives that person the most evilest of eyes as in what are you trying to do why are you trying to get this attention on us we're just trying to get through so it wasn't that they were scared but they but they felt as though they might get in trouble because of you know yeah we're, we're we're kind of distancing ourselves from our culture or what we do or what's normal there because of how it's being perceived in the west and also the way it's been used yeah we're definitely trying to kind of detach from it by right like terrorists so yeah so it's unfortunate so you asked the cop yes i did and it was um yeah i i was very nervous he was very nervous oh. um i kept thinking should i have my backpack asking this did you have your backpack yes, i think I you're did. scaring him <laughs> i know I, I thought you know it's a very suspicious question um i look at the part so what did you say he was very nervous he actually started sweating he was fidgety i was fidgety we all yeah he said, I'm asking a black and white question, but it's a gray area question, and it all depends on context. Okay. He basically said it's not technically illegal to speak Arabic, so that's it. He was very nervous about the question. I don't think he wanted to really delve into it, so he made so it a gray. It's a gray area question, so it, it all depends on the cues. Like, what is that person trying to do? What is it trying to achieve? What's the context of what's happening? It was a very politically correct Answer. I think it's I up mean, to the discretion of the cop in that case, what he's trying to tell you, right? In the yes. situation. That's but why that, I that scares that, me. That's, that's why I want to 
take this for then ask many cops and get a, a that scares me maybe idea. we need like a law to like know for sure what's right and wrong and you know we don't want to have situations in the future but at the same time i think that a lot of durkas know not to do things like that yes i asked him was like what would i put myself in danger by yelling you know what i couldn't even say it so all right well everyone this was our show for today we are just warming up stay with us for the following episodes i am sama I am Lilia from Algeria. This is Full Service Radio, and Full we record this live from the Line Hotel every week at 2 p.m. Everything you're listening to is live. Um, in the future, we look forward to bringing you better episodes. And keep listening to us, District Durkas. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.